Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. So this, is, this book has often been called the gospel according to Isaiah, and for very, very good reason. It is full of both good news, and as we'll see today, it is also full of a lot of bad news. But before we read this bad and good news, let us go to God and ask that his time, his blessing might be upon our time as we gather together and sit under his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we live in a very dark world very dark time yet father you are a god of light you dwell in light and you have given us that light the light has shined into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it father we are now coming now to the light of your word which we would ask that would become a lamp unto our feet father we'd ask that you would add your blessing not simply to the preaching of the word which we certainly would ask for but we would also ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of it Father, we'd ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Hear now the word of God. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour our land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, uh, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. 
Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. I'm sure you've heard at some point from this pulpit the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have you heard that one? It's, it's, it's a very popular one. In that passage, there is what R.C. Sproul calls the big idea of Christianity. And that big idea, he, use, he, he calls it, he uses a little Latin phrase, it's called Coram Deo, which means life before God. In that blessing, you have this idea of the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, the church here in the New, the New Israel, living before the face of a holy God. And this is what separates us from the world. This is what makes us different. We live in a very westernized society. Our culture today has a lot of the same ideas as Christianity. People like mercy. People call out for justice. You can't turn on the TV where somebody isn't pointing out that something is unjust in our world. It's all over the place. But what's different about the Christians' ideas of justice, of mercy, of charity, or whatever it might be? What separates us? What makes us other or holy from the world? I think the answer is quorum Deo, living before the face of God. But this is where theology becomes extremely important because we have to understand who our God is. How does, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah's vision, God is given a very important title for his, for his character. He's described as being not just holy, not just holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. This means that he is other. He is not like us. When we say that God is just, we don't mean he's just like we are. He's just like he is. When we say that he is righteous, he's not righteous in the same way that we are. He is righteous in a way that is unique to him. Even the holy angels cannot even bear to look upon him. Why? Because they might be holy, but they are not holy, holy, holy. This is something that Israel had forgotten in the days of Isaiah. They thought they lived before God, but they forgot who God is. They forgot about his holiness. And because of that, they're in pretty big trouble. Isaiah is coming to them saying that judgment is coming, Babylon is coming, get ready. You have forgotten something, and God is about to remind you of that. But what I want us to understand today is that when we refuse to forget what the Israelites had forgotten, and we live before the face of God, and we remember who he is, and we remember what he is like, that this is going to add a depth of understanding and complexity to that way that we understand things that even the world understands. And so what I want us to focus on is three things. That the more aware that we are, that we live before the face of a holy God, the more profoundly we will understand, one, the grotesqueness of our sin, two, 
the presence of God in our worship, and three, the magnificence of the good news, the magnificence of the gospel. So let's begin with the grotesqueness of sin. One of the things that Isaiah loves to do is he likes to point out, he likes to, he likes to showcase beauty, glory, holiness by contrasting it with its opposite. And so what he's doing, what he begins to do in beginning of verse 2 is he takes our sin and he wants to put it against the backdrop of the beauty of God. It's like I'm from Huntsville, Alabama. If you go downtown, my wife and I, we love to hang out in downtown Huntsville. And if you go to the square, there's lots of fun little shops. There's a really fancy ice cream shop there. But right there in the middle of it is Town Hall. Uh, it's this big concrete building. If you just looked at it by itself, you wouldn't think anything of it. It's gray. It's made of concrete. It's got a lot of glass on the bottom part of it. But if you compare it to its surroundings, across the street there's the old courthouse, which is made in a, in a very ancient Greek style with the columns and the nice molding. And then all, all around the rest of it, there are 200, 250-year-old brick townhomes with beautiful apartments upstairs and beautiful shops on the bottom. And then when you look around at all that beauty, then you look at this big gray box sitting right in the middle of it, you think, this is no ordinary building. It's hideous. It needs to be destroyed. It needs to be laid to waste. Well, the thing that is beautiful that Isaiah is going to use to compare to our sin is the name of God. And what's funny is he's not going to use an Old Testament name to compare our sin with. He's not going to use the name Yahweh or Jehovah, Adonai, El Shaddai. He's going to use the New Testament name of God, the name that is revealed in Jesus Christ, Father. So there in verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. This is setting the stage. This we're not speaking of a distant deity who's just giving us a list, who is just saying a few things. Maybe he's just creating the world and setting it into motion and then stepping back and watching. No, 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 no. This is a God who creates and is actively involved in the lives of his people. Why? Because he loves his people in a way in a way that a father would love his children, but in a way that is holy. So we can't even understand it. As much as we love our children, it does not compare to the love that the Christian has in the personal work of Jesus Christ. So when we come to this text, I don't want you to think that this is, this is Isaiah speaking out against some ancient pagan people in the Middle East. He's speaking to God's children. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to me, and he is speaking to you. Do you know what a privilege it is? to be able to call God Father. I, I had the privilege and the blessing when I was living in Clinton, Mississippi. I was in an apartment complex, and I had Muslims move in on either side of me. And we talked a lot about, uh, about the gospel, about the Quran, Islam versus Christianity. And one of the things that they just could not get over was the fact that when I prayed, I prayed to God as my Father. They could not believe it. It was unimaginable. For them, For them, God is so transcendent. Like, yeah, yeah, you, you, you can't call him that. But for the Christian, not only do we call him father, but we do not do it so sheepishly. We do it boldly. We cry out, Abba, 
father. Muslims call him Allah. The Greeks called him Zeus. We call him father. Can you wrap your mind around that glorious fact that he is our father? And what does he do for us? How does, how does he express this fatherly nature? Well, he does so by nourishing us. So look with me here in verse 3. Isaiah says, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now you might look at that and like, where is the nourishing in that? Well, first of all, let's look at that word know. In the Hebrew, that is yavah. Um, it doesn't just mean an intellectual knowledge, an intellectual assent, an awareness of something. It means a deep, affectionate knowledge. Another way of saying love, actually. The ox loves his owner. The donkey loves his master's crib. Well, you don't know how much you know about cows. I grew up on a farm. I guess my my uh, my my dad got cattle when I was about ten years old, and I helped raise the cows and everything. I don't. And as much of time as I spent with them, I don't know much about them. But I do know one thing: they're dumb. They they're real stupid. But you know one thing they do know: the guy coming into the field shaking a white bucket. He's your buddy. He's your friend. Why? Because he's coming out to nourish them. He's coming out to feed them. This is why, uh, this is why uh, I think uh, John Calvin argues in his commentary that when Isaiah says that children have I reared and brought up, should actually be rendered, children have I reared and nourished. And how is it that God has nourished his church? This is something that we should see far better than the people in Isaiah's day. Why? Because we're on this side of the cross. We are living on this side of the cross and have seen the nourishing love of God in a far more glorious way than, than Isaiah did in his day. We have seen the love and the justice of God come together and meet in the splendor of the cross. I, I love the Gospel of John. I love the Gospel of John, and I was born that y'all. I've been going through the Gospel of John a pretty good bit, so I'm going to get a little bit more here. But in the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, you have from the very beginning, as you're reading, the shadow of the cross is looming over the life of Christ, and as he approaches it, and he sees the shadow come, as he sees the cross approaching, you know what he calls it? The hour of my glorification. The cross, the crucifixion, where he would bear in his body the wrath of God, not do his sin, but do our sin. The only unfair thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, Christ becoming sin for the sake of the ungodly. The hour of his glorification. Why was it his glorification? Because he came to do the will of his father. And what was the will of his father? That he might accomplish what we have all miserably failed to do. How are we nourished? By feeding upon Christ. This is how he nourishes us. And so I mentioned before, I mentioned before how the idea of living before the face of God, it, how it changes the way that we, uh, we understand the world, how we understand life. It adds a, a layer of depth and complexity. And there's nothing else in my life that I think has done that more than me becoming a father. 
before I was a father, I would, you know, I would get in trouble with my parents, my mom or my dad, and they would scold me or I'd, I'd get punished. And then they would sit down, like I was telling the children here in the children's sermon, they would sit down with me and they would tell me, like, look, this is, we're doing this not because we hate you. We're doing this because we love you. And, and, and you, just, you just can't understand. I can remember my dad saying this, looking me dead in my eyes and saying, you just can't understand how much I love you. And here's the thing, I thought that I did. Because I love my father as well. I love, I love my mother as well. But then on the day that my son Mac was born, going on about two years ago, as I'm sitting there in that hospital, and I take him into my arms, and I'm holding him, I realize something very important, that my parents were exactly right. I knew nothing of what it was to be loved by a father. I knew nothing of what it was to love a child in the way that a father loves his child. And now I can't stop thinking about it. I used to make fun of pastors when they would get in the pulpit and all they could talk about was their kids. Every illustration was a, was a story about their children. I can't tell you the last time I preached a sermon where one of my kids, or both of them, did not get mentioned at least twice. They take over your life. They change it. That's kind of like. God's love for me. That's kind of like God's love for you, but just kind of. It's a fraction of it. It's like Moses seeing his hind parts. You know nothing of it. You know, you know nothing of what it's like. He loves you. He nourishes you. He cares for you. But this is, to this point, been pretty nice. You might have said, I heard there was some bad news in this. What Isaiah has been doing at this point, he's been using the magnificence and the glory of the love of God to sharpen a knife that he is now going to use to cut us to our core, to cut us to the heart. How do we respond to the love of our Father? Look at the language that he uses in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. In verse 1, he says, we rebel. In verse 2, he says, we have not loved. In verse 4, he says, we deal corruptly, we have forsaken, and we have despised. But who have we despised? The Holy One. The Holy One. He is our Father, but let us never forget that He is the Holy One. Isaiah, in his vision, he is called into the courtroom. The room is filled with his glory smoke lifts up from the altar he speaks and the sound of his voice calls the altar and the pillars to shake the angels around his throne can't even bear to look at him they cover themselves from his glory and from his holiness and then what does Isaiah do the holiest man in all of Israel he falls on his face and he says woe is me he pronounces a curse upon himself woe is me I am undone. Maybe a better translation would be, woe is me, I'm a dead man. I am a dead man. This is the one who we dare to rebel and to forsake. And this is an, this is an important point here when it comes to our sin and how this helps us understand it. When we sin against God, these aren't boo-boos or mistakes. When we sin against God, this is an act of, of rebellious will against his sovereign authority. There is no small sin against a holy God. 
We need to get we need to get away from this idea that when I sin, well, well, I've just I've just made a mistake. That's not how this works. God is holy, and there are no small sins, and our rebellion is grievous to Him. How far does this rebellion go? Verses five through six. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is, no, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not, oppressed, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. We're sick from our head to our toe. And here's the tragedy of it. We don't even know it. We've, been dece- we've deceived ourselves. There, when it ends, when it says bruises and sores or raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up. That means that they are not bandaged. They are, they are not softened with oil. That means that they, we have not sought medicine. The idea, the idea here is, is that there's, we're, we're pictured as a man who has been, who's been beaten and bruised yet has no idea. He's walking around like a dead man with oozing wounds and is not even seeking out, not even seeking out a doctor, not seeking somebody to bind him or to give him any type of healing. This is the danger of pride. This is, this is what pride does. Pride is magnificent at hiding sin. It's either going to hide our sin with others. You've maybe seen it do this with you when it says, well, everybody does it. You know, this isn't a special sin. This guy over here does it. It's a small sin. That's hiding your sin with others. Or it will hide your sin behind others. It will say, well, at least I'm not like this person over here. I could be worse. That is pride. Pride convinces you to ignore the cancer that is festering in your soul. I once spoke to a doctor who, uh, who worked with cancer patients. And I asked him, I said, what, what, what is the most... What is, what is the most dangerous form of cancer that a person can have, thinking that he's going to say tumor or leukemia or something like that? And his answer was very simple. He said, the worst form of cancer that a person can have is the cancer that he does not know that he has. That is the cancer that will kill. That is the cancer that will lead to ruin. Pride masks the symptoms. It masks the cancer. We need a diagnosis we need the holiness of God to shine light on this because this is what the holiness of God does. It reveals sin. It reveals it to us. So where we might see no sin and only self-righteousness, verse 7 and 9 tells us what God sees. He says, Your country lies desperate, de- desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, and like a besieged city. Let me, let me highlight real quick the, the picture of Israel being like a booth in a vineyard. Now, this might sound very strange to us. We have a lot of, we have a lot of like, cotton fields and corn fields around here. Don't see too many vineyards. Um, in, this, in this day, the vine dresser, the farmer of the, the farmer of the vineyard, would go, when it was getting kind of close to harvest time, would go in day in and day out and would check the grapes for ripeness. And once the grapes had become 
pretty close to being ripe, like really, really close, so that he would be able to harvest the grapes as soon as they were ready. He would go out into the field and he would put up a booth, a tent. He would begin to live in the middle of the vineyard. Now, before the harvest comes, this would have been quite the place to live. Uh, my wife and I went to Charlottesville, Virginia what, a couple of, couple of years ago, um, I believe. We went to Monticello, the house of Thomas Jefferson, a beautiful house. But Jefferson was also a wine connoisseur. And so he surrounds his home, he surrounds the mountain with these vineyards. And so as we're coming off of this mountain, we're driving through these vineyards, and they're over these rolling hills at the feet of these majestic mountains, and as, as beautiful as Monticello was. It did not compare to the vineyards. What Isaiah is saying here is that the people of God are like that booth in that vineyard. You're surrounded by bounty. You're surrounded by blessings upon blessings upon blessings. The beauty of it all. But it's coming to an end. Because when the harvest comes and that booth is left, it's in a wasteland. It has come to ruin. God is saying, I'm going to take away the blessing of that vineyard. And what is the blessing of that vineyard? This is our second point. The presence of God in worship. When we think of judgment, I think we are, are often, the judgment that we're really afraid of, we're, we're afraid of, like, invasion, destruction. Certainly Israel, uh, Israel is. I mean, Isaiah is prophesying the coming of the Babylonian Empire who's going to destroy them. They're going to ravage, ravage the nation. But God is going to point out something different here. He's not just coming for the nation. He's not just coming for their prosperity. He's going to remove something from them. He's going to remove himself from them. So I'm not going to read every verse, but here, verses 10 through 15, this is what is being detailed. Isaiah says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls and, uh, or lambs or of goats, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. We, all, we, we have a bad tendency of making, making out like worship is just something that we do. What does Westminster Shorter Catechism question one ask? What is the chief end of man? wanted to rephrase that we could say what's the meaning of life That's, isn't that the most deep philosophical question anybody could ask what is the meaning of life why am I here why does, all, why does any of this matter philosophers write books about it Christians, reformed Christians anyway give seven words what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever worship, worship. and so when you think of judgment Think of tanks running through your hometown, planes going overhead, you and your family huddled in a closet, praying that the bombs don't hit your house. It sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But does it sound worse than you opening your hands to God and him turning his face from you? Which seems worse? Because it's the first one, we have a problem. Because here's the thing, the presence of privilege, the presence of prosperity is not a sign of blessing. If it is, 
there are a lot of martyrs who have a lot of bones to pick with God. Let me read for you a, a line from the hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, then, is all, then he is all my hope and stay. You know what's missing in that? Prosperity. You know what's present? You know what's not missing in that? Blessing. Where is his blessing? His oath, his covenant, his blood. They support me in the whelming flood. All around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. The presence of God in worship. So when you come to worship, are you here to do something? Are you here to check a box? Are you here to dwell in the presence of a God who loves you and a God who sent his son to die for you? How do we prevent what happened, to Isaiah, happened in Isaiah's day to happen to us? Well, the answer is quite simple. We behold the magnificence of the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is our final point. The good news. Verse 16 and 17 gives us a list. Isaiah says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead to the widow's, plead to the widow's case. Has Israel done any of this to this point? No. Were they unaware that they had to do these things? No. Isaiah, what good are you doing them? What good is coming from this? I remember a friend of mine once uh, went to a pastor, uh, went to a pastor, went to his pastor, and said, "I said, Pastor, I'm, I'm struggling with um, a strong addiction to pornography. Uh, I, I, I can't. I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to kill it. I, I just can't. I don't know what to do." And the pastor turns to him and says, "Well, you know, God doesn't like it when you do that, so you should probably just not do it anymore." And my friend's response was, "Duh, duh. Why? Why do you think I'm here?" I, I, I know that's what I'm, I know I'm not supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to desire other things, but something's wrong with me. I'm broken. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that if a law had been given that could give life, there would be no need for the righteousness that comes through faith. There'd be no need for the gospel. So what's the answer? What's the, what's the answer? Where does the will come to wash myself? Wash myself to seek justice, to, to seek good, and to seek righteousness. Where does that will come from? The answer is, is, is hidden, but it's in Isaiah chapter, chapter, uh, chapter 1. It's in verse 11. It's where, um, uh, it's where, the, it's where, it's where he says, he says, um, um, oh man, I'm losing it. He says, uh, I, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Well, where's the Where's the gospel in that? Where's the gospel in that? Well, this is not original to Isaiah. I, Isaiah didn't come up with this. This is from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. It's a, it is a psalm, it is a messianic psalm. It says, In sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book of uh, the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 
Listen to what the author of Hebrews does with that passage. He puts it directly into the mouth of Christ. He says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Did you hear what Hebrews just did? You have a conversation between two persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. And the Father saying, which you have here is on trial. He says, when he says, come and let us reason together, this is a courtroom case. This is a, there's a dispute that is happening here. Well, you're seeing, the, you're seeing this eternal dispute in, in Hebrews. The Father saying, I am holy, I am just. How will I ever have mercy upon this sinful, rebellious people? And then the Son coming and saying, Father, behold, you have prepared a body for me. You have not delighted in the blood of their sacrifices. Why? Because their heart is far from you. But my heart is with you. I have come to do your will. I will do your will. I will accomplish what you have given for me to do. I will accomplish what they have failed to do. And in the body that you have given me, I will lay down my own life as a sacrifice for the ungodly. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. That's not merely the good news that you receive that you might be forgiven of your sins that is the good news that you receive and the Holy Spirit seals to your heart and you begin to look more and more and more like the son of God who was given a body and who came to accomplish the will of his father you will look more like Christ you and you will look more like the holy God in whose image he came. This is the good news, not just for the beginning of the Christian life, but for the whole of the Christian life. So remember, you live quorum Deo, but the God before whom you live is not some distant deity. He is a father who loves you and sent his son to die for you. You remember that. You remember that and you can live Coram Deo. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news that is contained in your word. We thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that though we're weak, there he is strong. Father, we would ask that you would build us up into his image, that you would continue to forgive us of our sins, and that you would give us daily witnesses of his goodness. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now let's continue to worship our